All right. You may be seated if you're not already. Romans 6.1. I'm just going to start in Romans for just a moment before we move over to Isaiah. Romans 6.1 asks an important question that any Christian might ask. It is basically, since I am saved by grace, since God has done the work in saving me and he keeps me by his grace, then is my sin really such a bad thing? Now, that may sound odd to us because we, we know the conclusion that Romans 6 moves to, but we can certainly understand the, the genesis of the question. The, the, the lead up to it back in, in Romans 3 and 4 is to stress that no one can be saved by keeping the law. It's not about performance. It's not about what one can do in order to try to earn God's favor because we're all lawbreakers. We all disobey God. And so Romans 4.16 says that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And so the, the gift of salvation is a work of God's grace. We trust in Jesus Christ. We put our faith fully in his life, death, and resurrection, and that's what saves. We don't work to earn God's favor. Chapter 5 in Romans goes to great lengths then to emphasize God's grace in our salvation. We're sinners by nature and by our actions. We are deserving of God's righteous punishment against our sin. And so Five times in Romans 5, it speaks of the free gift of salvation that is by God's grace. This, this gift that God gives that is an act of his grace. Jesus suffered so that we might receive God's grace. And that then, it is that emphasis on grace, on God saving us by grace, on salvation being a free gift, that then prompts the question in Romans 6.1 of, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Again, the logic, as the Romans are wrestling with this and Paul's writing to them, is since God's grace already rescues me from my sin, then maybe continuing to sin would mean that I receive even more of God's grace. His, his grace abounds to me, and, and maybe that's not the worst thing. And of course, the immediate reply to that in, in verse 2 of Romans 6 is absolutely not. And what Romans 6 then goes on to expand on is the fact that a believer in Jesus Christ has been saved by the death of Jesus Christ, joined to Jesus Christ, so that, Romans 6, makes the point we might walk in newness of life. We might put off the flesh and walk by the Spirit because we are no longer slaves to sin. And so Romans 6 is saying, no, that grace is transforming so that now you would live differently and not continue in sin. So Romans 6.11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's no basic theology, perhaps, for many of you, but the, the grace of God not only saves us from our sin, is the, the gospel message that rescues us, but then sustains us and empowers us to live Christ-like lives. And Titus 2, 11 and 12 really captures both pieces of that when it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Both the saving and the training and the empowering are all works of God's grace. He's not simply saving us and leaving us in that place. He's saving us so that we might then renounce ungodliness and live upright, self-controlled, godly lives. 
So now turn to Isaiah 56. We're, we're starting this morning our study of the last 11 chapters of the book of Isaiah. We've divided the book up into several sections, and this is really the last section of Isaiah. And one of the themes that comes to the forefront in this section, not, not a new one particularly, but one that's emphasized in this portion of Isaiah, is the call for God's people to live as God's people in recognition of what God has done and his grace, now living upright, godly, and self-controlled lives. The believers in Rome that Paul wrote to were not the first to wrestle with this sort of fanciful idea that since God now made me his own by grace, it doesn't really matter how I live. Because here in Isaiah, what we're seeing again is there's a, a people uniquely chosen by God to have a, a ministry that is to be something that is evident to the other nations. They are to be worshiping God and, and obeying God and, and living out godly lives so that the nations around would, would begin to see that. And yet, they are still dabbling in idolatry. They are still embracing immorality. And they are still not looking like a people who belong to a holy God. That, that the fact that the, the Jews were called to live differently and yet wallowed in this unfaithfulness is highlighted from the very beginning of Isaiah. They are despising God's law and it starts in chapter 1 with the, the condemnation of the fact that you have been called to be this people and yet you are not all the way to the point that when you get to chapter 6, Yahweh ultimately asks the question, whom, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who, who might be a faithful servant that would go forth and proclaim the glory of the Lord and honor me? And we know Isaiah steps forward, very much an imperfect vessel, one who repents of his sin, is in, in need of God's forgiveness. But then much of Isaiah's ministry is this speaking words of divine judgment against the Jewish people for their rebellion against Yahweh. That prophetic ministry of Isaiah begins back around, we, just to, to recollect where we are in history, around 740 BC, under the reign of King Uzziah, and it lasts until about 690, maybe, maybe almost up to 680 under King Hezekiah. Much of the early part of that time is spent saying to the people of Judah, Trust me, I know the Assyrians are an ominous foe, but you must trust me and I will deliver you. And of course, we see Uzziah as he, he refuses to do so. But eventually, under King Hezekiah, the, the people are led to trust in God's protection and God does protect them. But, but then as we've moved through Isaiah, we've seen that the shift now is, is ahead, uh, is past Isaiah's day. It's, it's, it's looking into the future. So under Hezekiah, they, they obey and they are faithful, and yet the warning is that this will not last. Hezekiah's son Manasseh will come, and there will be this increased rebellion against God. They will carry on in sin, and that will lead ultimately to punishment by the nation of Babylon. The Babylonians will come. This is about a century after Isaiah's ministering this. The Babylonians will come, and they will lead the Jews into captivity. Over and over again, the, the prophecy ends up being fulfilled that the people would be unjust and unrighteous and violent in their actions, all the while still sort of performing the religious rituals, still carrying out the, the activities of sacrifice 
and prayer, still doing the, 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 the holidays, if you will, the, the feasts and gatherings that were prescribed, still claiming to be God's people in much the same way that the pagans in other countries do. I, I do what my God prescribes because if I do that, then I get something in return for it. It, 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 it's just a simple arrangement that if I obey him, then I get something back. And so that's, that's been the gist of Isaiah until we get to chapter 40. And that's the passage that begins, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This judgment is coming from Babylon, this judgment on your sin, but here is the comfort. And it comes in two ways. One that's actually relatively minor compared to the other. The one is, you will be rescued from out of Babylon. I will provide for your deliverance from captivity. But then the the really big one that fills chapters 40 to 55 is, I will make a way to deliver you from the judgment of your sin. This rebellion against me ultimately will be met in the servant whom I send for you. The servant who comes and who will give himself as a ransom to redeem his people and save them from the wrath they deserve. And that that glorious, hopeful message fills chapters 40 to 55. And in fact, when we left off in November, at the end of chapter 55, there's almost a feeling where it's like, boy, this, this would be a great ending right here if this is where Isaiah stopped. Because at this point, you've got in chapter 55, God showing his grace in salvation by saying, come, buy, eat, even though you have nothing, even though you have no money, come and receive from me, incline your ear to me, hear me that you might live. So the closing verses of Isaiah 55 are just this joyous benediction. When the servant comes as as the redeemer, all will be made right with the world. The king will have arrived and all will be made right. Now, perhaps Isaiah could end there. People redeemed by God's grace, the sacrificial saving work of his servant, but no. Because the the king, as we know, comes once to save, comes again later to establish his kingdom. So Essentially, Isaiah knows through through God's giving him this prophecy, there there is living to do after this. Despite this great news of a servant who is coming, there's still going to be living and there will still be that temptation that says, okay, so God's done this. He sends a servant. I did not obey his law. I broke his law. The servant comes. He gives himself as a ransom for me. So, Tell me again, why does it matter how I live at this point? If the servant is doing all that matters by giving himself in my place and as a ransom for my sin, then if I choose to please myself, if I don't meditate on God's word, if I strive after my own desires, my life doesn't necessarily point to Yahweh, does it matter that much if in fact Yahweh sends the servant who is the light in the darkness? He is the redeemer who comes. How much does my life matter? And it's that kind of thinking, the idea that a people saved by a holy God could somehow still sort of wallow in the world and not look all that different from the rest of the world, could still just sort of go through life and blend in. That's what Isaiah now begins to confront when we get to Isaiah chapter 56, the the real and serious risk 
for you and I, as it was then, is this misunderstanding or misusing of God's grace as a license to do whatever I please and to know that it's all covered and, and, and ultimately Jesus has done the work. And that ultimately leads to a place of sort of practicing kind of the same ritual sort of religion that the Jews are doing, just sort of checking boxes, covering bases, doing the things that I think that I should do because that's what God wants and hopefully I'll get what I want. And so Isaiah wants his readers to know, just as Paul would 700 years later when he wrote to the Romans, that yes, yes, God abounds with grace. Yes, God saves by grace. And he, 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 he changes you. And that's, that's the, the point now is that by his grace, he wants to transform you in how you live. He wants you to be different in light of that grace, and he's empowering you to do so. And so we start in Isaiah 56, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, note that thus says the Lord, because we're going to see it one more time in this passage. So this, this significant turn from 55 to 56. Now the Lord says this, commands, two imperatives here. Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. From the start of Isaiah, one of the themes, one of the, the, the phrases that you should have heard repeatedly is the combination of justice and righteousness. These commands at the beginning, keep justice and do righteousness, have been said in various ways over and over again throughout the book of Isaiah. When he says this now, he's talking about God's description of justice, that which loves neighbor, that which is, does right by neighbor, that which doesn't show partiality towards others. And when he talks about righteousness, he's talking about God's standard of what is right and wrong, living according to God's truth and his law. Man does not decide what righteousness is, what right and wrong is. We try to, but ultimately God gives his law and instructs us in, in obeying it. And so he is now commanding and saying, you who, who come to believe in the servant by God's grace, you are called to, to keep justice and to do righteousness. This goes all the way back to chapter 1, as he's looking ahead in chapter 1, verse 26, and says, I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Saying, to, to glorify and honor the Lord, his people must repent of their injustice. The, the sins that he's so often dealing with in Isaiah are sins of partiality, sins of injustice, sins of cruelty, one with the power, using it against the one who does not. And so by God's grace and power, he's seeking a people who are different. They are known to be just and righteous and faithful. But he started all the way back in chapter 1 saying, that begins with repentance. Repent of your injustice. Repent of your unrighteousness. And over and over again then, through Isaiah, that theme is repeated. And, and in fact, when you get to chapter 9, one of the first prophecies, chapter 7 being probably the first, and then chapter 9, one of the early ones that looks forward to this king who's coming in the line of David, who will sit on David's throne, it says this ruler will establish and uphold God's kingdom with what? Justice and righteousness. 
What will be the marks of his kingdom? The things that are completely contrary to what we see in the world. Justice that is true and pure and righteousness that is by God's standard of right and wrong. In chapter 11, again, this coming one will judge the poor with righteousness. Over and over, Isaiah has been condemning the Jewish people for lacking in these areas in particular. They are not demonstrating God's righteous standard. They are not being just toward others. And he is condemning that and saying, if you are subjects of this king, understand the the, the marks of this kingdom are justice and righteousness. These things must be there. When Martin Luther King Jr. quoted Amos chapter 5, verse 24, in his most famous of speeches, he says, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Those words should resonate in the hearts of God's people, because that is what God is calling us to, to be a people who love God's justice and righteousness and, and seek to follow after it. So loving my neighbor as myself includes keeping justice and doing righteousness. Just as God commanded in Isaiah 56.1, these are not optional. We, more than anyone else on earth, we who are God's people should be advocates for true righteousness and justice. All right, I want to come back to verses 3 through 8 in Isaiah 56, but let's jump forward for just a moment to verse 9. I'm going to read Isaiah 56, 9 through 12, and, and we get this transition now. All you beasts of the field, come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own wage, to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Prosperity. I, I, just, I just want what I want, and when I, when I get that wine, and when my belly is full, and I have what I want, it is a really great day, because that's my ambition. Recurring theme again from the book of Isaiah. Warnings about the influence of leaders. Stressing over and over again, that what often is leading the people astray is the influence of their rulers, not only their local rulers, but the kings. If you remember, Isaiah begins the book by locating his ministry within the reign of four kings, and then throughout Isaiah, there are various critiques of those kings in terms of how they shepherd the people, how they are in terms of their accountability to God in following what God calls them to do. And we we saw it from the foolish rebellion of King Ahaz, who would not obey God when God says, ask for a sign, I will protect you. And Ahaz says, no, I'll I'll, I'll take it on myself. We'll do it, We we don't need you. All the way to Hezekiah, who despite his failings in his latter days, we see bowing before the Lord as the Assyrians are approaching and crying out for help and the Lord delivers. The picture here in chapter 56 is another one of rulers, and it's describing them as primarily motivated by one thing, my appetite. What do I get from this? If I'm going to rule, I, wanna, I want some gain from it. They're not, they're not warning people against evil as they should because they're too busy providing for their own comfort. Instead of taking up the urgency of the work that God has called them to, it says they are lazy, they're, they're drunk, they're sleeping. And meanwhile, their people are being led astray. They are 
ignorant to it and only concerned about the next glass of wine. All of God's people, all of us are responsible before Yahweh to obey, but he places in positions of leadership those whom he has called to be, in particular, accountable to him, to be responsible before him, to shepherd the flock, and to warn and exhort and teach And it's this blatant failure by the leaders to obey that God is condemning in no uncertain language here. The judgment that he speaks here should also strike us as a warning, a warning to our own appetites, whether you are a leader or not. The the kind of description that he gives here of their sin is very much a description of the pervasive spirit of our culture, just as it was in Isaiah's day. And that's this idea that my wants, my needs are most important and, and, and I will harm you, at least by my words or my lack of words, in order to get you out of the way so I can get what I want. Certainly, I'm not regarding God in this. I want my desires fulfilled. Commentator John Oswalt writes this. He says, in so many ways, the satisfaction of supposed needs is all important to us. We drink to excess. We eat to excess. We cannot get enough sex of all sorts. We lie and cheat to get more money, to buy more things, to put into more storage facilities, and we sacrifice our children, both the unborn and the living, to the satisfaction of these needs. Is that not an apt description of our culture? But it is one that you and I must Resist. We need God's help and God's grace to not succumb to the temptations and pressures because the, the nature of man, apart from the grace of God, is, is self-fulfilling. It, it is putting self first. God's people must be different. Loving neighbor must be more than a talking point for us. It must be something that we strive to live out justice and righteousness and care. Instead of coming to devour, we should be those who feed. Instead of slumbering while neighbors rush toward God's judgment, we should be people who warn, who speak God's truth. Instead of being most earnest about our own gain, we should be eager to serve by the model of our Savior who came to give his life as a ransom. Chapter 57 continues this theme, although it moves now from what the leaders have done wrong to now the consequence of the leader's sin. Because the leaders are failing, here is now the the mass rebellion that is going on. The people are then oblivious to, to the evil and injustice around them. And then at the beginning of Isaiah 57, he points out that, that there are those who are righteous and faithful, but they are they are, as it were, vanishing, is the way he describes it. They, they seem to be disappearing. Look at verses one and two of Isaiah 57, the righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. No one takes it to heart in any way. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. The the, the picture here is God in some way withdrawing his restraining influence on evil whether it's the fact that the righteous remnant are dying off and they are gradually disappearing and no one seems to care, or evil is in fact overrunning those who seek to do right, the, the picture in these opening verses is the world itself is, is turning upside down. Not only are the righteous disappearing, but nobody's missing them. It's almost as if, good, good to have those fuddy-duddies out of here, those law keepers out of here, now we can do what we want, we don't have to listen to them. Verses 3 to 13 the judgment then moves more particularly to the people and especially to the practice of idolatry. 
We need to remember again, Isaiah is not, and, and he's done at various points, he's spoken to the nations, warned the Babylonians and others. Here he's speaking to the, the people of Judah, and he's condemning their practice of idolatry, a people who would regard themselves as God's elect, God's chosen. They're still doing their religious routines. They're still keeping their feasts. They still think that they are keeping God happy, as it were, and expecting blessing. That's, that's what their religion had devolved to at that point, kind of the quid pro quo, that we, we do this, God, we come on Passover, we, we do Day of Atonement, we do all of these things, and, and you care for us. You, you meet our needs and you provide for us. It's sort of a performance ritual to gain something. And he describes them in this passage in terms of how they are elevating their evil desires and their cravings to do whatever they please. The kind of stuff that these verses describe, chapter 57, prostitution, slaughter of children, sorcery, lying, rise of, of sexual evil, all common among the neighboring nations. But Isaiah is looking forward to this period, in particular after Hezekiah, when Manasseh is king, and when the people of Judah simply devolve into some of the worst of sins. When they are to be distinctly different, they are as bad or worse than the world around them. And so he levels his charges against them, and then God summarizes their state of being. If you look down at verse 11 of Isaiah 57, kind of a rhetorical question here. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off, a breath will take them away, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. We're going to come back to that last part of verse 13 later, but the, the essence of the prior verses here is, who or what are you worshiping? That's the question in verse 11. Whom, whom did you dread and fear that you don't remember me? Who, who is it that you are worshiping? You say it's Yahweh, but that's a lie. He's being just, just judging them very clearly. You've given yourself over to other gods, other desires, and you have forgotten me. Verse 11, that, that last question is really a measure of God's grace. We, we look at that, it, it sounds odd at first. Have I not, God saying, have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? The idea when it speaks of God holding his peace is, is more than likely God saying that I've withheld my judgment. I've given you time. I, I have withheld doing what I could, and yet, even then, you do not turn to me. You do not fear me. God did not strike them dead at the moment of rebellion. He gave them time to repent, but instead of seeing his grace, they continue to ignore him in rebellion. God will not stay silent. And that's why verse 12 says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. The emphasis is on your so you've, you've set your standard of right and wrong, and you've done your deeds according to it. And I, I will declare the record of what you've done. I will declare the record of, of what you have called righteous, and it will be worthless. It will not profit you in any way. You are not doing my righteousness. You've, you've used this man-made scale of right and wrong that benefits the rich and, and vilifies the poor and dismisses the outcasts. So, so your works will be proved worthless. 
And in fact, when the day comes that you are in trouble and you cry out for help, go ahead and cry out to the, the idols, the, the desires that you pursued. See if they come and satisfy you. When you reject God's standard of right and wrong and devise your own, you put yourself in a dangerous place. When I rationalize and excuse my sin in some way, I am mocking God's law. God is fervent about empowering me to do his will and to pursue his righteousness and justice, and he will not be mocked when I seek to live by my own desires and not yield to his help. Good news. We've come through the bleak part of this section. The good news is, as we've seen over and over again in Isaiah, he is a patient and gracious God. This is not the end of the story. We, we might have wished it ended at the end of 55 when all was right with the world, but instead we're, we're finding that, no, there's still, there's still the flesh. Man's still struggling with temptation and sin, but this is still not the end of the story. God, through it all, will preserve a remnant by his grace. He will deliver a people for his own who will be joined to him and who will obey them, and, but, but they won't necessarily be the people that you would expect. They, they, they won't be the leaders who've been leading people astray. They won't be some of the, the most powerful people. They may be the kind of people we'd least expect. Look at, go back now to chapter 56. Let's go back to verse three where we were before. Isaiah 56, verse three. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. So amidst this series of commands and warnings to the Jewish people, God now turns to foreigners amongst the Jewish people and eunuchs who were among his people. Speaking to those who are outside of the line of Abraham, foreigners, and those who could not contribute or pass on Abraham's line. We might use the word outcast here, and we'd be right to do so because God uses that exact word down in verse 8. These are the people who, by the community's standards, are pretty much worthless. They're not part of Abraham's line. They have nothing to offer. We have the birthright. We have the credentials. Who are these folks that it matters? Look at what Yahweh says, verse 4. For thus says the Lord. Now remember, we had that before. He said it right at the beginning of 56. Thus says the Lord. And here's the other place where it's reiterated to say, this, this may startle you, but this is the word of the Lord. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that's better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Remember Jesus speaking that as he's cleansing the temple. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides these already gathered. Thus says the Lord, your birth certificate, your line of ancestry does not make you pleasing to God. Participating in feasts and bringing sacrifices and praying prayers are not the tell-all. 
God's people are those who love his name and who believe his word and who do what it says. They love his name, they believe what he says, and they do what he says. They are, as it were, as, as, as Isaiah uses the language here, as God uses the language, they are joined to, to him. That's why, verse 4, the emphasis is on thus says the Lord. Because here are these people whom the society has labeled outcasts, who God has now said, are united to me. That They are joined to me. You see that relational sort of piece in verse 6, the foreigners who join themselves. Same description there back in verse 3, the foreigner who has joined himself. And the rest of verse 6 makes it clear that joining oneself is not a just sort of membership card. It's, it, it's not a superficial sort of claim. Oh yeah, I belong to God. It, 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 what it is, they join themselves in order to love and serve Yahweh. There in verse 6, they aren't joining for what they can get. They are joining in order to give glory to God. See it again in verse 6? That... Um, the foreigners who join themselves in order to minister to the Lord, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. That, that they, they are coming not for the purpose of what do you have for me? I'll, I'll do this if I can get something back. They're coming to minister to him. And that, that's echoing verse three where it speaks of, of the keeping of the Sabbath and the, and the covenant keeping, keeping the law and giving sacrifices are right before the Lord when they are done from a heart that is devoted to Him, that loves Him and is seeking to glorify and honor Him. That's not seeking to simply jump through hoops in order to achieve something. They want to praise Yahweh and exalt His name. And this is why God pours out His grace on His people. This is why He saved you and I. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, this is why He saved you. So that you might bring glory to Him and minister before Him and love his name, and worship him, and serve him. That's what he has made us for. That is where our greatest joy is found. God has redeemed us and now empowers us to live out this calling. And for those who do, there is great reward. It starts with the eunuch in verse 5. This is the one who cannot bear a child and who has no one to carry on his name. Critical peace in a, in a culture such as that, in an era such as that, to not be able to carry on your name. And yet, what does God say? He will have a name that's better than sons and daughters. Children are a gift from the Lord. Psalm 127 puts it, the, the, the language as a heritage from the Lord. It's the idea of speaking of an enduring inheritance. That your, your children carry on the name, carry on the legacy, if you will. Our name lives on through them. But here he's speaking about those who, who don't have children or cannot have children, and they are not any less loved by God. As a matter of fact, he sees their devotion and he honors them, it says, with this everlasting name, name that surpasses even the legacy of my, of my next generation, beyond what a child might give. The blessing continues in verses 7 and 8. The Lord, it says, gathers the outcast to himself to the place where he dwells. I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will bring them to where I am, that they may be with me. And most importantly there, it says that their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices. You understand what that means? Is when they come in repentance, when they come and bring their sin offerings, I will forgive them. It, it, as they come humbly in faith, I accept their offerings, and I give to them forgiveness of their sins. 
and redeem them. Their faith is in him and he meets them with forgiveness, making, making these so-called outcasts his belonging to the Lord. That's a glorious picture of how God saved you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. It's, it's not just outcasts from within Israel. That's why verse 8 When it says there at the end, the Lord says, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Most of us fit into that category of others. We are those outside of the nation of Israel who have been drawn to him. That's why we proclaim the gospel. That's why we emphasize missions. That's why we talk about going and about praying for those who go, and and the ministry of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in other places, because God continues to gather people to his holy mountain from among the others. And that holy mountain brings us to the last piece. I mentioned it to you before, back in chapter 57, verse 13. He spoke to the evil ones, when you cry out, let your idols deliver you, the wind will carry them all off. And then he says at the end of verse 13, and we'll read all the way down through 19, but he who takes refuge in me, he who trusts in me, shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. This is a sweet sort of benediction-type passage on all that we've seen this morning. Those who trust in the Lord, those who trust in Yahweh, take refuge in his city. Those who who trust him, who, who find their peace in him, dwell with him. Remember, this is after all of the warnings of of those whose righteousness was false, those who claimed to be joined to the Lord by virtue of their deeds, and yet their deeds were worthless. But those who are gathered to the Lord, they are marked by humbly trusting in him, finding him to be their refuge. And for them, he says, all of the obstacles on the highway to his dwelling place are removed. That's the the point there in verse 14, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. These are those who are coming to the holy mountain and, and God is removing the obstacles in the way and chief Amongst those obstacles is our sin. That's the point in verse 15 and then down into verse 18. Verse 15 describes God as the Holy One, high and lifted up. He cannot ignore our sin. He he cannot act as if it's not there. God must address our sin. It must be judged. And in fact, the the following verses indicate there, as we've read, that that God does judge, that our sin is worthy of his anger, and there's no way to satisfy that anger 
apart from his provision. When verse 16 says the, the, the spirit faints, the breath of life as well, what it's saying is if there's no way to ultimately satisfy the wrath of God, then the spirit of man is defeated before him. There is no hope for us. There is no, no hope of life. If there is no way to satisfy God's anger against sin, then we just go on and on in being separated from him in a hopeless plight, and there's nothing left but for God to pour out his wrath on us. That's why Isaiah 47, 15, if you take, uh, Isaiah 57, 15, if you take anything away from this morning, meditate on verse 15. Take that as the, the verse that you hold on to, because it is one of the most wonderful verses in all the scripture. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That is the gospel capsulated in, 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 in one verse. The transcendent God is high and lifted up. He is sinless. He is exalted over his whole creation. And yet, he says... I who dwell in the, the highest and holiest of places, I dwell with the contrite and those who are lowly in spirit. With me are those who have humbled themselves, those who have felt the terrible weight of their sin, who have felt the, the crushing power of their sin, who have felt caught in sin and death, and who have turned to me and cried out for rescue. Those, that's the contrite and lowly. Those who have under the weight of their sin, been humbled by it and realized there is no way for me to climb this holy mountain. I cannot get to the place of God on my own. We are beneath him and we are subject to his justice and the only thing we can do is cry out for help. And what he describes in verse 15 is the sovereign work of his spirit when he says to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Revive is to give life. By God's grace, and here we are back at God's grace, he saves and he does that by breathing life into the unbeliever, by giving a new heart to the unbeliever, a heart of flesh that now embraces the fact that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And because of the sovereign work of God and his grace, I then trust in the Lord. And for those who trust in the Lord, he says there is peace. There is peace, peace there in verse 20. That word for peace, that Hebrew word, we know it, it's shalom. But it's not just a circumstantial kind of peace. My, my circumstances are, are, are good and they are quiet. That Shalom has the idea of wholeness. God takes people who are broken under the weight of their own sin and who humbly recognize that. He revives the spirit. He gives life. He gives a new heart. And he makes them whole. He makes us complete before him. He gives us wholeness, peace for all of eternity. It's all of God's grace from the, the sending of his servant Jesus Christ to give his life on the cross to the working of his spirit to revive your heart and to give you life so that you might trust in him. Now to the conviction of his spirit to cause you to, to see your sin and repent of it and, and turn to him and, and receive his forgiveness to the empowering work of his spirit to transform your heart, to change your desires, to give you desires that would be like those of Christ so that you might follow after him 
to no longer, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. By his grace, the Lord is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. Let's pray. Lord, you have made it clear in your word that we who profess faith in the Savior Jesus Christ are to be different. We are to have a peculiar love for true justice, a concern for the oppressed, a desire to see that which is unjust corrected, a desire to to see your righteousness in our lives influencing those around us so that when it comes to the the culture standards of right and wrong, of, of sex and prosperity and achievement, lying and hypocrisy and all of these things, you have called us to a standard of righteousness that you have established to be a people who who renounce ungodliness, who strive for purity, godliness, uprightness, living according to your true standard. And you have not called us to that without the equipping to do so. You've given us by your spirit now, dwelling within us, the ability to to confront our flesh and to learn to put it to death with its desires. And to instead seek after his, your spirit, to follow after your leading, to take what we see in your word and to strive to obey it. Your spirit, the very spirit of God, is empowering us by your grace to do this. And so, Lord, we come before you this morning. Lord, I pray that we come humbly, aware of our need for your help, aware of the incredible pressures and temptations of the world around us to conform, to look like the rest, to develop worldviews that are like the rest, and to not be singularly minded in our devotion to you and our desire to live differently, to love neighbor as self, to serve, to sacrifice, to demonstrate the holiness of of our high and exalted one. Thank you, Lord, that you come to the contrite, the lowly. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who is feeling overwhelmed and weighed down by the guilt of their sin and, and, and feeling like it's a hopeless plight, that they have struggled with addiction or persistent sin or something that just feels so overwhelming that they could never possibly be right before you. I pray that today your your grace would be poured out, that they would see that the, the servant, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, took on himself our sin and all of the, the crushing burden that is, so that in him our sin might be judged, so that by his death and resurrection we might be made righteous. We might be given a right standing before you. So that even as Paul said, the the chief of sinners would find rescue and forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. It's a glorious message. Help us to be generous in proclaiming it. 
And now as we sing, we pray, Lord, that this would be our ministry to you, that we are honoring and declaring your greatness, showing our love for your name and our desire to serve you first and foremost. In your name we pray, amen.